Go, Mick. We're, we're live. Go. We're live. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of year again where Dobbo and I are recording a podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to Risking Failure, everybody. We haven't forgotten about you. We do love you, and we're doing this for you, just for you. Yes, listeners. These are so far apart, they should be called reunion episodes. Or, you know, what is it when a band tours again and they come back to or something? I know. Um, I know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I just had to do this on my other podcast too. So, uh, anyway, here we are though. That's the important part. Um, and, and we're here today to kind of talk about the opposite of, of um, maybe... Us. Yeah, which is obsession. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been obsessed with recording every week, have we, mate? But that's okay. We haven't been obsessed. We've got a mild interest. Yeah. Um, and that's not really true, actually, because we do actually love recording. Um, yes. So that, that sounds rude, but we do love it. it there's, just, there's just a lot going on in life. Um, and, of course, these are work days for me. They're actually really expensive days because every Friday when we do this, it's just written off. Like, like it's... And I already got a pretty casual lifestyle, but Brad ages ago asked me, he's like, well, you know, you, I had some targets. He goes, well, let's look at your diary because that's always my rule. Which, and he looks at it and goes, mate, you got to delete about 10 of these things out. Okay, but, but they're the fun things. <laughs> this is my life. Um, um, so off air, I had said to Mick, I had this idea for a topic. It was obsession. And he said, no way. You got all that of me. No way. I've got that too. Um, so we're like, let's record now. So Mick, you give me the intro though. Why did you, why are we talking about obsession? Well, it goes back away for me. I, um, I sometimes put notes on my phone when I'm thinking about stuff and, oh, you know, something like that. I had a note to myself and I can't remember the context of it to be completely honest, but it came from that, that Anthony Robbins Netflix thing. I wrote it when I was watching that and all I did was I wrote down, um, rejection breeds obsession and how often I've seen that play out in my own life and the people around me, particularly with things like uh, getting rejected on a proposal or a sort of cold shoulder on an opportunity. And for whatever reason, you find yourself doubling down on that, uh, and in some ways unable to move on in the business world, in the personal world. It, it's like the the idea that the girl or the guy doesn't like you, but there might be the opportunity. And it's like this, it's this potential for rejection that breeds this obsession over that one individual or the job. And just like, um, yeah, a new job you may be applying for or looking for or, or just all these things. Um, I thought it was a very interesting statement that I just wrote down and I, I've never really jumped in and reflected on it. So, Because um, I remember that too and I thought that distinction was just first class when I heard it because I've seen people get obsessed before and as much as you can say, hey, don't worry about it, there's other fish in the sea or there's other clients out there or, or the, whatever the relevant example is, um, they just can't let it go. They can't let go. But also, we all can't let go as well. Like, we, like as an indiv- you know, we've all been guilty of it. But my intrigue about obsession was different because the other day I said to somebody, oh, I'm just obsessed with Hemingway. 
and Hemingway and Walt Disney obsessed. And they looked at me with this ghastly look as if, as if that's just wrong to be obsessed. Uh, and they put it in this box of really being unhealthy. And, and, and maybe I've loosely used the word obsession there because, you know, I don't have um, news articles clipped out and stuck all around the house with, you know, drawing pins going from here to there. But I, I do really, really get fixated on something in usually and passion driven. And it is healthy. You know, as a matter of fact, if, you know, if somebody wants to do something really world class, they have to be obsessed. It's their one focus. Um, and I don't know at those times that rejection is actually um, the cause of that obsession. If anything, for me, it would be the, oh, I had a good word for it before, but it was like a lack of satisfaction. It's the, the, the thirst that hasn't been quenched. Yeah. And this was the part where I was like, I haven't thought through this completely, talked it through with somebody before, but like I've, I've observed this thing that I wrote down from listening to whatever Robbins was saying, but it doesn't hold true everywhere. Right. So that's why it's interesting to me because I was like, well, that's not, it's not consistent everywhere or maybe it is. And I'm not thinking it through. Well, but his correlation or causation is, do you remember the context? Yeah, I do remember the context, but uh, like I vaguely, like I won't go back to the details of it, but, but he's actually saying rejection breeds obsession. He's not saying that's the only way you can get obsessed, but he says obsession is the consequence of rejection. And then you, if you look at obsession, you, there's probably three or four other paths to obsession. And I think- So what is it in, about Hemingway for you then? Um, oh man, I get so emotional I'll talk about this weird emotion like i just get so stirred up like people don't understand it when i say it a few people do he he could write the perfect sentence and and when i said that it 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 means that he cut out any word that wasn't necessary and you can look at a general typical sentence and say people have cut the words out. But no, 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 no. This guy just took it to a whole new level. And his philosophy was just one true sentence, like to write something that was so true, it just smacked you between the eyes. And I love the efficiency of that kind of writing. Um, Not efficiency is time efficient because it's not time efficient, but from a reader, so much of communication – so much knowledge is transferred in just one, yeah, in just one short sentence. As a matter of fact, I've got, I didn't know this, but because I am obsessed, I do have, a, <laughs> I do have his autobiography right next to the computer. And see, you shouldn't have asked me this. So I'll, I'll, I'll just, <clears throat> let's start at page one. Um, now, I, I, what I will do is he was originally famous or put his name on the map with, with just six sentences. And these sentences were acknowledged of being so bang on that then people said, oh, what else have you written? Um, you know, has he got some poems? Has he got a novel? And he never thought that he'd be able to write a novel. He thought it was a clumsy sort of, um, I just thought it was too epic, too cumbersome, not his medium. He thought it was just always about prose and stuff. And so, but then eventually expanded. But 
um, let me see if I can find you a sentence. Or maybe six. Should I find you a sentence? Huh? Maybe six. Well, I've got the six here. Um, Why don't we start with that? <laughs> well, I haven't ever read them out loud before, so we'll see what happens. Because <laughs> the other thing is he writes a very blunt, terse way. So, uh, sometimes I find I can't read him naturally. But anyway, go. I've seen the favourite crash into the bullfinch and come down in a heap kicking while the rest of the field swooped over the jump and the crowd raced across the palouse to see the horses come into the stretch. I've watched the police charge the crowd with swords as they milled back into Paris through Port Maillot on their 1st of May and seen the frightened, proud look on the white, beaten-up faces of the 16-year-old kid who had looked like a prep school quarterback and had just shot two policemen. I've stood on the crowded back platform of a 7 o'clock Binoles, I don't know what that is, bus, as it lurched along the wet lamp-lit street while men who were going to uh, supper never look, looked up from their newspapers as we passed the Notre Dame grey and dripping in the rain. I have seen the one-legged streetwalker who walks the boulevard Madeleine between the Rue Cambon and Bernheim Jouance, these are French terms, limping along the pavement through the crowd on a rainy night with a beefy red-faced Episcopal clergyman holding on an umbrella over her. I've watched two Sangiovese soldiers in the dim lit of the snake house. Oh, sorry. Fucking hell, I made a mess of this. Dim light of the snake house. I'm not going to go. It's just... <laughs> yeah, really. I cannot, don't have, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I told you I wouldn't be able to read it. And then the thing is that when you hear this stuff, you just your brain, as a result of me reading this badly, right? Even if me making a fucking hack of it, you just like, hang on, that kid shot someone, or, or, or you hear, oh, hang on, there's a, a clergyman holding an umbrella of somebody in the rain. Like you just have this, it, there's this, it just somehow punches you somehow, and you try to, well, how the fuck am I still thinking about that the next day? And so. Yeah, like, and there's more, there's, there's a couple, but they, and these are long sentences, but they're just, it's only about 200 words, less, not even, must be maybe 100. Hmm. It's the efficiency of that that you're obsessed about, or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the, it's the. Um, is it the efficiency, or is it actually more about how much it stays with you? Um, that's what we're talking about. We're actually talking about the impact for effort. So, you know, there's that famous saying that often is given to Mark Twain, but I don't believe that's actually who said it. Um, I, would have, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have time. And I can tell you to write a 40,000 word book or 50,000 word book, whatever training freak ability was, that was easier than writing some of the blogs that I write. Because you can make an error in 50,000 words and it's, you know, just how you get one sentence wrong, it's a tiny fraction. Totally right. It's, it's, it's much easier to write three pages than it is to write one because you've got to figure out what you're going to yeah. condense down. But, oh, there's more about Hemingway. There's so much more. I feel like I haven't done that justice at all. But, but, and with Disney, he created, we've talked about this before, just he, he imagined beyond anything anybody had imagined before. He invented new genres. He invented the feature-length cartoon invented stereo sound, like invented the theme park where you pay to enter. Um, 
Like it was just extraordinary. He built his own bloody world. So I'm, I'm fascinated by people who just push their art form to an extreme level. And I probably can connect to both these guys' art forms. So what makes you think it's an obsession though? Like, is it something like what for you defines an obsession then? Like, that's a really good question. So for me on that stuff, um, I, when I'm reading it or learning about it, I'm absolutely enthralled. I'm, I'm, I'm just so, I'm so enthralled by what I'm learning. I'm fascinated by it. And that's, that's one thing. The other thing would be, for, um, say, Disney, I had an absolute obsession with, I was like, I just wanted to go to Disneyland with Brona. I just wanted to show up, but, I, but even if Brona wasn't there, I just wanted to go. I was like, I've got to go back. I didn't feel like a thirst had been quenched last time I was there. I honestly felt there was some tiny nooks and crannies that I hadn't checked out and it was doing my head in that I didn't know what was behind that door or down that little, you know, if I had, I never went into that building um, so, but that kept on coming up, like consistently, I'd be like saying to be, oh, I've just got to go to Disneyland. We've got to go to Disneyland. And then, but then since we've been to Disneyland, that stopped, just stopped cold. Mm-hmm. Um, that obsession really, meaning, or you feel like it is quenched? Yeah, because it's been quenched. The thirst has been quenched. So no, the interest is still there, but the absolute, the consuming, the way it could consume me has disappeared or it backed off. Yeah. I feel like recent times, certainly podcasts are, a, a, it's not so much about the medium as it is this um, certain types of podcasts maybe or topics that I find myself like it really piques my interest maybe. One thing I found about three years ago, maybe two years ago, was a, like this podcast that was just really syndicating just like republishing a whole bunch of public debates that were done on <clears throat> between believers and non-believers and i found this like i just couldn't i couldn't listen to enough of them i just found the contrast just addictive to listen to people's thought processes because of how much it was helping me shape my own view of the world like i, I didn't realize how shaping it was that like how important that contrast was and it was maybe just a good time in life to do it and i'm still like if if that comes i, I don't necessarily know where a convenient way to find it so i don't like seek it out because i'm not that kind of person just sits in front of a computer and watches freaking youtube i know i can do it but um but i have found if i'm watching like netflix on my own I've been really interested in like documentaries that um, dig into questions that I haven't really, that I don't truly know the answer to uh, about human history in particular. Like, so I've read that book Sapiens and it wasn't that it was totally addictive. It was just more that it was like, it was, I was totally uh, there was just elements of it. There was totally like, a few chapters of it that was like just stuck with me and took me on a whole nother rabbit hole. Right. Um, and just simple things of like, I didn't I, like it, it, it's bugged me for like months that I didn't know 
where the earliest human life form has been detected and what's the earliest, the oldest human remains that have been found like and where are the oldest dinosaur uh you know tracks or whatever like shit, how can i not know the answers to these things because this is like hugely important right so like i've been doing that kind of stuff and like how do i not know where the aboriginals came from how do, how do i not know how they got onto australian land and how do i not know how long they've really been there and what the first traces are it's not like anthropology or like, you know, getting into the entire subject matter of digging up stuff. It's just like really uh, I've, I've found it obsessive in, in the way of like informing me about why I think what I think or, should, or believe what I believe or whatever, like that sometimes is elements of what you think. And, and maybe that's the same way for you is, you know, there's something in there that helps identify what you like a, an element of yourself that hasn't been given a definition yet. And it's like addictive because you know, it's there. And if you get into it far enough, like it, it especially as you get older, I think, um, these things- and I think that that's what happens in say the, the classic obsession situation, which is a romantic one is the, is you basically feel like there's something in it for you. Like there's this thing that you want. And, and I think we're obsessed until we can have it. So if, if I've got a passion for cars and I rebuild my car and there's this one part that I haven't been able to find anywhere, you know, of a particular, you know, whatever. And, you know, you can hunt it down and you want, you don't feel complete until it's done because you know, it's possible. And then when it's there, the obsession goes. There's a joy with it and a satisfaction and then you move to the next thing. And I think fundamentally what we're talking about is this This is an unsatisfied part of myself. And I agree with what you're saying as far as I feel like there's, some, there's, there's something in these guys' lives that can help me answer aspects of mine. An obsession, if we took the romantic one, the guy has got something, or the girl's got something missing from their car that they want to put on there because they're rebuilding, or you take the conversation we're having, there's perhaps different levels of sophistication or depending on where you are in the journey of life. I think, you you know, you do obsess about somebody and you do that a few times. I don't think we're ever immune to it, but then as soon as your need's not met, Oh, no, you might become more resilient to it in the future. Go, oh, I've been down that path. I can't be bothered having that conversation um, or getting caught up in that. But generally, I think there's a principle here that we think there's something in it for us or our growth and we can't move to the next stage until it's it's done. And I'm not even sure they're necessarily very rational ideas. It'd be interesting to hear what Brene Brown would say about that if she's done any work on it because she's quite um, – her work's quite good at, as we know, just digging into things like shame and vulnerability. It might be interesting to hear someone actually put a different distinction around it because we might just be looking at this at a very surface level and not, not know we are. To part of like even this little quest, it's a quest in some ways. It's, it's like I think it's – when people talk about being afraid of getting old – and because they're afraid they're going to stop learning or stop, like, it, I feel like it's this, like, um, 
not saying that happens a lot, but I, I think, you know, I've heard that come from people before and it seems to be maybe related to this fear that they'll stop being excited about learning something new, that they'll just like lose the, 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 the sense of, cause I do find myself like, uh, really, I, I really love finding a subject that I could just like turn into a quest, but it's subconsciously happening. And it's just always this thing I'm coming back to part of it. I don't know whether that has any play into the whole obsession thing where, you know, whether uh, it, having a quest like that is, is obviously maybe helpful. Um, but part, part of the one I've been going through as that example earlier uh, has had me now paying more attention to early human life and just basic instinct of humans. So like I find myself thinking about issues like this and going, well, if I was like a hunter gatherer and I don't even necessarily have like fully developed like languages and, and, you know, um, you know, intertribal relationships and things like that. I've got this like maybe tiny little tribal community I'm part of whatever it might be. Where's obsession then? Because wherever it is there probably relates to where it is now. So is it an obsession on finding food or shelter or, you know, like, so is there something there where, like, it just takes hold of everything you're doing? But then what's the distinction between that? Because it's survival-based and one that's much more about finding certain fruits of life so to speak you know things in nature that you're just fascinated by and you just want to learn more about it's just like i, I don't know you know um they just typed in obsession and the definition it says an idea or thought that continually preoccupies or intrudes on a person's mind and uh the synonym is fixation i'm not big one for going for definitions like that to to solve an argument or something but when i thought I was curious because we're talking about, well, what is the consistency? And you, I, what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, at what point is it, is it quite useful for a person in the most primitive of settings? And have we distorted it and is it unhealthy now or is it still very primal and serving us? Because um, I think we've, I think we've, bastardized a lot of emotions what do you mean by that like just like taking basic emotions and spread them out into like all these new meetings that like a family tree of emotions is that what you mean or i think we've more so um we misinterpret them and we misallocate them so for example an easy one is is love i've talked about this before where people go you know i love them or i love that thing but they're stressed out, desperate for the phone to ring from that person or to get a text message. So that's actually not a love. That's actually the absence of love. That's a rejection, um, breeding obsession. Yeah, possibly, or a dependency yeah. or a fear. Totally. Like what's yeah. the, and it's the fear of loss dominates possibly, the, or and yeah. it could be excitement. If you're really excited for that person to call, I just think it could go either way. It's, people just have m multiple reasons why they don't answer that phone and then they call it, although they're desperate for the phone ring and they call it love. I think um, Mary Louise wrote a good um, blog the other day on, um, she's been on the show before, obviously, just the way we give food an emotion. We make food good or bad. 
you know, that's a good food or that's a bad food. And if I eat this, I feel bad. And if I eat that, I feel good. And what you're talking about, we're letting the meaning we give food dictate what emotion we have. And then we put guilt around that when really food's such a fundamental function of life. And I think the way that we look at anxiety, oh God, I can't believe the number of people that tell me they've got anxiety issues. And it's all quite sensitive and all that medical stuff, guys, see a specialist, all that kind of stuff, see an expert, right? But I'm, I see a, a high correlation with this sense that you've got to get everything right. So then once again, we've, we've allocated right and wrong to things that don't need to be like the food, good or bad, to right and wrong to, and, and we've got this obsession with perfection. And I think we even misunderstand what the perfection is. We think that perfection is that, um, a meal is served so well we can take a photo of it, put it on Facebook rather than allocating the idea of perfection to say um, something of natural beauty. And I think another one would be progress, like that we overvalue progress. We, the progress is, I think, well, maybe you said on Tim Ferriss' show, but we say that we, we suggest that progress is good. And but really things are done in the name of the progress, but if we actually didn't value progress so much, we might make quite different decisions. I think we misappropriate, if that's a term, or if that's right, emotions um, to either justify our position, to confuse it. Uh, and I think it's done, the classic is done on advertising all the time where they constantly tell you there's a sale on and you saved money. And you come home and you tell me you saved money. You know, any relationship, you say it'll save money. And, you, and you're like, well, well, but there's less money in your account, so you can't have. I think we're quite lost on all this stuff. That's why I was wondering when you talk about the primitive thing, what, what, what do the primitive people, is it, you know, is obsession fundamentally something helpful? Yeah, as you talk about it, 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 it's like when you strip down life down to the point of survival instinct, um, then you start to go, well, how did a... Did, how did somebody at that time period free up time? And then, so obviously they had systems in place that allowed them to reliably, you know, figure out um, how to manage their surroundings and stay in those surroundings for some time so that they could reliably get to know them and make them predictable. At what point then they begin to free up time? Do they, how do they decide how they're going to spend that free time? And what happened when somebody got into an obsession? What, what, what if somebody was just obsessed with peanuts or something? I don't know. But, you know, like, it's like there's just no, there's no ability to go back and see what happened there. But I, I, as we're talking about this, this is like, you know, because I've been in this little journey, it just makes me like I find myself more and more now going back to those periods and going, well, where did this shit come from? What's its purpose? Because I do think that something like obsession is a like it, it's there to it, it seems to be a raw human thing. Like it's something that's uncontrollable. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and those people who don't know it, most people probably have heard of it, but it fundamentally says you've got basic needs, then you've got psychological needs, and then you've got self fulfillment needs. And you know, and the self fulfillment is like is the highest on the needs chart and it's like actualization. Can I be all that I can be? Can I live in my full potential? Can I, can I immerse myself in creative activities? But 
you don't have that thought when you're hungry. And so, therefore, the, you know, the, the basic need is food, water, you know, food and water, basic warmth and, and, and just to be able to exist, the absolute minimum. And if you don't, well, and I think once I, I would say that's met, right, but it's almost like going back to what ML was talking about because I read the same blog. I thought it was great. Um, but, that, like, there's an overlap there when somebody takes food into the category of self-actualization. Can I use food as a definition of who I am and use it to identify me and, and relate to other people? And that's when it gets dangerous, right? Because you're using food a raw, like and shelter, which are things that are just raw human needs, but you're using your shelter and your food for reasons that are they're not designed for. And that you just fall into this unsatisfying trap right um geez you've nailed that mick that's 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 really interesting where we make food warmth and water and rest we make those fundamentally a part of our creative endeavors when we're trying to self-actualize and then it becomes very confusing because now i just need to eat yeah, yeah, because it's not beautiful and I need to take a photo of it. Yeah, it's like your identity mm. is tied up with your food. And that's obviously an unhealthy place to be. And no matter how much you come home, <laughs> if your house isn't nice enough compared to your friend or whoever, like you just, you never satisfy that, that thirst. Yeah, and I don't know that that falls into the category of obsession. It's just an interesting thing to think about. But um. well, I've always thought that the reason I brought up um, Maslow's hierarchy was because it seems to me that if I don't have water, I'm going to get. You know, we've all had that where we're just so thirsty. You go, look, I can't talk to you right now. I just got to, I got to get a drink. I got to get some food, and then once that's met, we're available. Um, so we've all had that where we get obsessed about something before we can do the next thing. And I think, you know, it's not, um, it seems to be pretty related that, you know, we're getting obsessed when we just don't have something we want. Like fundamentally, I think what we're, what you're sort of suggesting is that thing that we don't have, is it innate? Do we fundamentally need the next thing, which is often can be suggested as growth, but there's that other time when, or is this fundamentally misguided? That guy that just eats, you know, needs peanuts, peanuts, peanuts. And there's some sort of mental switch that's happened where we've now got this unhealthy, obsessive gorging on something, which is never satisfied. Then, then you've got some, you know, weird, weird messed up psychology shit going on. Um, that's why when I said obsession, I was like, I think it's, like I find my obsession is really healthy. And as a matter of fact, I anytime I'm advising someone who's really elite, I'm like, yeah, you should be obsessed. Like if you want to get that, you're going to have to think about it and sleep, eat shit and talk about that more than anyone else on the planet so that, you know, you do have to. So here's another interesting one that I, I heard some follow-up questions on. Ferris's podcast from somebody that's really interesting, actually, Debbie Millman. Oh, yeah, I listened to that interview. 
Um, there was I, didn't, like, I didn't love that interview, actually. That was a bit unsatisfying for me. Well, but- evidently it was the most listened to one he's had of all time, but there was a follow-up one that had her just doing, you know, simple questions. And that was actually what I found much, much more interesting. And, you know, there were some questions of people asking, because she's in a very interesting field of graphic design. So you could hear all these people, like sort of you could almost hear a lot of the questions were coming from people stuck in corporate America or they were a solopreneur or whatever and asking like, well, you know, you've had all the success, you went out on your own based on all of these, you know, background and blah, blah, blah. And how did you, you know, how would you do it if you're in your late 20s and you know, she was answering these questions brilliantly of like just sort of saying things like, you know, um, I, I probably wouldn't have because I was too scared. Uh, I didn't have the courage to make a change. And the fact is there's never a better time than now. And the truth of the matter is now is never a good time. Like it's like whatever you do now is never going to be a good time. So don't wait for the future you need to get started now. So she was like answering some really good questions, but the nature of how she answered one of them regarding that question was the triune brain, which I've, I've heard this before, but it's escaped my brain a long time ago, um, which was really going that like these, this co- concept of three parts of the brain. You may have looked at this in your psychology. So it's the reptilian complex is what, uh, would be considered like our earliest, earliest parts of the brain that were developed in in the evolutionary process, which are dealing with things like uh, your eyes blinking, your uh, adrenaline response to uh, a potential threat, um, you know, fight or flight type stuff, and just immediate reactions to things and things that just go on in the background all day long that are like reptilian based. Um, talking about like that being you know you don't think about oh my gosh there's a car about to hit me what should i do you you just your body just does what it needs to do and this is the reptilian brain um and it's dealing with risk and um and and uh then she's talking about the mammalian part of the brain which is all about nurturing and part of being a mammal and raising and rearing children and this need to you know have, develop um all the reproductive and parental behaviors and things like that. Um, and then I think the last one was, I don't know what she called it, but when I was looking it up here, it was called the neo-mammalian brand, uh, complex, which is really all about creativity, language, uh, perception, you know, the creative side of a brain. And so what she was talking about was this issue of like how strong the reptilian part of the brain can be to make you think that everything around you is a threat and (laughs) it's really hard to get past that. But it makes me think about like, well, okay, so obsession, what part of a brain is that living in? Like, where is that coming from? Is it, is it so primal that it's down to the, like this reptilian thing or is it really part of it? It certainly doesn't seem to be anything to do with a, you know, a, a, um, um, reproductive part of the brain in terms of looking after people and things like that, maybe, but it seems a bit more on the creative side, yet it, there's a little bit of overlap, you know? I don't know. It's mm. this kind of stuff, when you brought up Maslow's stuff, it made me think about mm. what she was saying earlier in the uh, week when I was listening. It's interesting how we've taken the idea of obsession and we've put out two different psychology models 
And someone's probably got a bloody great model on this somewhere um, and could hear this and just go, no, no, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't, not that it doesn't correlate, but it, there's a greater causation somewhere else, in, you know, for some other platform. But it'd be also interesting to know if there is a model, if it helps you actually stop the obsession if required. But that being said, right, but, you know, but fundamentally though, when you are obsessed, you don't want to stop. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really feel like it is something to do with that side of your there's this, this this side of your identity or something that you're brushing up against that is exciting. You're you're learning this new boundary or something. I don't know what it is, but when you talk about something like being obsession in the healthy way, the the pursuit of something, you know, when I think of the scientist that just, you know, is working in the lab and just won't stop. Yeah. There's the people that are just like, it's not really an ego thing. Maybe sometimes it can be an obsession about like trying to get it perfect to bring it to the world or whatever but then there's this really healthy obsession that's like i just love discovering things in the lab and they just can't stop and that discovery seems to have so much strength um um, daniel came home years ago when we were living together came home and he'd he'd been on some course or something and he said oh dobbo i was you know, I saw the category you fit in today. He's like, it's a, it was the mad scientist category or something. And, uh, which is the mad scientist goes into his laboratory and goes berserk and finds an answer, you know, looking for an answer and he doesn't succeed. So his way to cope with that is to go into the laboratory and <laughs> do it again. And, it's this cycle where either genius comes out of it or absolute, yeah. You know, because, of course, there's a massive consequence for living in your cave for too long. Um, and, of course, you know, how much money you invest in that. And, you know, that can be applied to all sorts of things. It's the, it's the person who thinks, well, you know, he was talking about business, I guess, particularly. But, you know, we've probably all seen people who, you know, investing in a building development or something or shares and they go, no, 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 no. Well, gambling's a classic, right? But you know, I just I just think if I just do this one more thing, I think we're good. I think we're good. I can basically I can use the tool that got me into the trouble to get me out of the trouble. It's plausible for it's plausible, isn't it? Even for gambling. It's like, well, yeah, you might have one more bet and you might get that million dollar jackpot and you're out. But then of course that just reinforces. And so uh I just mentioned that off the back of that 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 idea that well that becomes like the, for me the category of obsession in the negative sense of where it's the, somehow something to do with that fear of rejection or whatever that uh, this is so tricky though mate because like I I agree that it's it's it can be negative at that point but like I advise people who are obsessed and. Sometimes I look at it and they're on their they're on their last cents, dollars and cents. They are they've been invested in say a sport or a business, you know, take a sport say for eight years. And they're all hoping they're gonna get their payday. Or they're gonna have hoping they're gonna have this big win, it's gonna get easy, they're gonna, you know, be an Olympian or they're going to but with a business, they're gonna get that contract, it's gonna make it work, you know. And 
oh, they're, they're bouncing this stuff off me. I have to be very careful to not be the person that says stop. Because I actually look at it and go, well, you're stuffed. But then again, maybe they're not because when you're obsessed, you, you f- can find a way. And it's the difficult thing which we're discussing now is when is that healthy and worth it and when is it not? You know, when do we when do we encourage someone to keep running with that obsession? And I know people encourage me to stop my obsession with with just what I do now for a living. And I'm glad I didn't stop, and they're glad I didn't stop. But the obsessed person still believes there's a way. And it is very tricky when how the hell do you know if they're right? Or if they're wrong, oh, this reminds me of that um, movie I watched the other night, White Men Can't Jump. The basic idea is this, our lead white guy, um, whatever his name is, um, he, he's a hustler, he's a basketball hustler, and he pretends he can't play, then he goes on a court with African-Americans and turns out he can really play and he takes their money and that's the whole thing. And he's got a girlfriend that keeps saying, sometimes we, when you win, you lose. And sometimes when you lose, you win. And sometimes when you lose, you lose. And sometimes when you win, you win. And he's like, he can't, um, Woody Harrelson, he can't get his head around it. And in the end, he ends up having this huge hustle. And he goes, made $5,000 and comes in and just says, honey, I did it. I got, I won. And she's gone because she's just over it. And he's like, God, I won, but I lost. That's deep, guys. That's really deep. <laughs> I don't know whether you think that's a framework for like where you cross the line. See, I think there's this correlation between obsession and when it transfers into addiction. And then there's also obsession of like, I don't know, like sometimes it's the sunken cost mentality that becomes the defining factor of uh, when obsession can begin to spiral into the the wrong direction is because that the like you said earlier, you're using the same tool that got you into it to get you out of it, um, which may be the early signs of transition into an addiction. I don't know, but um, it's fascinating. I, I, yeah, it is. It is an interesting thing. I can't believe that we'd never actually talked about it before and explored it. You know, because both you and I came up with intrigue on the topic, but for two totally different reasons. Uh, really, and you know, I was, I was thinking it was a great thing, and I was excited about it. And and meanwhile, Robbins is saying it, um, it links it to rejection, which you could do too, couldn't you? Because you could say, like, I can totally see that. Uh, yeah, it's definitely difficult. I tell you what, the tool I do do is just for for in that situation where I think someone might be needing to stop. I usually will say to them. Listen, why don't you just retire for three weeks, but don't tell anyone. Just pretend. Just see how it feels. Try it on. Um, and it's the same thing with a business. I might say to someone, look, why don't you just, let's pretend you're selling this business and just pretend for a week. Look around at everything, see how you would feel, what you'd be doing with your time. And I get them to try on the other option and then let, that way they've made, they, they make the decision. Yeah, that, that only comes up. Well, it would come up if I was really concerned about somebody. I think they need to. I'd probably suggest that. Or if they're they're at an absolute frustration point, 
Um, you know, I've got a few clients through the years that have just been just they're just broke, like really just trying to get the outcome. And you know, I'll, I'll say, well, let's imagine you had a job. How, how do you reckon you'd go with that? Like, what would be the challenge? And and toy with it for a little while, and so they can find their own way out. It's kind of like pointing them in a direction that could be more rewarding. And I think you know, I guess you could do that on a dating thing too. Like, well, imagine you weren't with them and you started to go on some date with some other people, just entertain that idea for a week or so and what joy could be in it and stuff. Um, yeah, well, that, that also sort of feels like it. Some of what you're talking about there is like redefining a belief system in some ways, like testing a belief that, oh, I could never have a job, like I could never work for somebody again. You know, I've, I've heard that coming out of my own mouth and, uh, it, it you know, it's like it's not a tested belief it's just something yeah i don't see it as a belief as it could be there is beliefs element in that but i think the lead thing is vision that you'd need to look somewhere first and once you look at something and you entertain it then you then you're confronted by what your beliefs and thoughts and fears are around that so i tend to go with vision first like what's it look like um rather than the belief but then the belief is a secondary thing typically i find but you know you could be splitting hairs on that yeah See, once again, man, I just like my brain goes back to this like early, early, like I'm, I'm just imagining the conversation between the whatever, the, the perceived couple, husband, wife, whatever, the guy in the tribe that just won't let up. He wants to go over that hill and see what's on the other side. And they're like, we have to like, this is, it has to stop. Like, but I got to see what's over there. Like, you know, we just keep going on the other side of each hill. Like, I don't know, but it's just, it, it's fascinating to think about like what, what obsessions drew people in you know into potential danger or you know the wrong places or new and exciting places i mean that's really what explorers were doing was following an obsession in some way to to find new lands and new places and stars and all of this you know and we romanticize some of those early explorers too it's that's right heroes and stuff but that's so right. many of them just wanted to be famous you know they just they wanted some of them maybe just wanted to live in the high seas and discover new worlds. Others just thought, I'm going to come back and be somebody. Um, hey, it's time to go. I've got, you know, mate, got to take over. The, I've, got to, I've got to be able to go and read this paragraph properly. <laughs> Brush up on your French. Well, yeah, that's the thing is because, you know, when you're reading on your uh, on your own, like I did this with Harry Potter, there's some of the names of the um, the characters. I just... I didn't know how to pronounce some stuff. So you just you just look at it or you invent your own version of it. <laughs> it's like I think Voldemort was just something like vowed, vowed or something. Like I, I didn't even bother stringing, you know, whatever. And so I find I do that. <laughs> and Hemingway spent most of his years in Europe or the early years anyway. And I'm just like skipping over words like I speak fluent French until I have to say them. Uh, it's too good. Uh, did, uh, who is the one with like didn't Hemingway? Like who is the one that? committed suicide was it Hemingway he did yeah yeah what the, there's yeah. an interesting story behind it wasn't there like um he'd always grappled with um depression and his dad had suicided and he'd often even in his 20s had um seen that as a legitimate option when he broke up with his first wife he was he was he was contemplating suicide and went through massive dark patches. And I think the real greats do have this massive 
contrast out of absolute struggle becomes some level of genius and clarity, unfortunately. And then he, um, he was always a hunter and he was so depressed later in life that he had a lot of, um, uh, electric shock treatment on his brain. So to try to kill the depression, if you like, it was a different era then. And, and then he lost some of his capacity because of that. And then as he, later in life, he suicided. And um, the, he's, I think his, his children actually sort of blame his wife at the time because there were guns in the house and she never bothered locking them. And But he was just done and he fought it his whole life. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I, I've got a very significant autobiography here that I'm not quite through yet. And it's gonna, I'm going to find out more about that a little Mate, bit soon. You're going to spew when I tell you this, but when you were just in Florida a short time ago. When I went to Key West, you can go to the, almost, uh, the Hemingway Home and Museum and there's like this island. I think it's an island, but you, um, with all the cats. With all the what? Cats. cats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Um, no, I was aware of it. I was actually just in San Francisco and there's a Walt Disney Museum there, but I didn't know about that one. It's actually his family's museum and it's about him particularly. Um, and I'm, I'd love to go do that stuff. Like, the thing is that I just can't fit it all. Like, I'm trying to go to America again next year and I have got – or later this year. I've got so much to fit in. I could be there for bloody – I could be there for six weeks pretty comfortably and be booked up every day. It's stupid. Like, it's great, but it, I'm in conflict. So, but, you know, I'm just – I'm calm. I'm like, I've got my whole life to do this. I've got at least another good 75, 80 years and I'll just keep – yeah, because I want to do that stuff. But I've, at least I've ticked off the uh, Disney thing. I just OD'd on that. So I don't have a desire or a particular urge to go back. But if I was ever in LA, I would. Just, it's right there. Why wouldn't you? Happiest place on earth, Mick. Happiest place on earth. You're right. All righty, mate. Well, um, it's been good to, good to chat. Thanks for listening, everybody, to all our loyal listeners. I think we're surprising people when we release episodes now. It's, it's kind of getting exciting if we all really think about it. <laughs> You're like, whoa, look at that. It's like a car crash just pops up on their screen. They're like, oh, my God, there's another episode. I know. And they, they listen like, to it just purely because they're like, what would those guys still be going on about now? How many episodes have we done, Mick? Like, mm, we're in the 80s, high 70s, 78 to 80, 79, somewhere We're taking forever to get to 100, aren't we? I know it's it's uh, we'll get there. <laughs> Bit of obsession wouldn't go astray. <laughs> it's like a, a perfectly aged wine, mate. We're not in a we're not in a rush. We're making grange here. We're not making uh... <laughs> making grange. All right, mate. Over and out. Chat to you later. See you, folks. See you, everybody. You've been listening to Risking Failure. To join the community and access more free content, news and updates, subscribe at riskingfailure.com.